Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hello and welcome to the new mini-series with LawPod titled Speaking Her Truth. We are a group of four young, strong women from all over the world studying law because of our passion for social justice. We speak from primarily a female's perspective on various injustices while still touching on how men and other minorities are affected and the ways that the law can protect you or may not have protection currently in place. My name is Alexandra Cook and I am a first year senior status law student from Canada. My name is Tavisha Soon and I'm one of the four members of LawPod's group Speaking Her Truth. I moved to Belfast six years ago from India and I'm currently a first year law student at Queen's University Belfast. My name is Jade McCauley. I'm from a small village in County Donegal. I'm a second year law with politics student. I joined the law pod to shine a light and create awareness on issues that I'm passionate about. I also joined to make topical issues more accessible to students. Hello, I am Maeve Devlin, a second year law with politics student here at Queen's University, Belfast. I'm originally from Chicago, Illinois, but have moved to Belfast to pursue a bachelor's degree. I decided to join the Law Pod due to my overwhelming compassion for human rights and social justice and thought the Law Pod would be an excellent way to spread awareness to legal injustices. Today's episode, we will be talking about rape myths. We are very fortunate to have a special guest join us today, Rosie Cowan. Now she'll introduce herself. Hi there. Thank you for having me. Um, uh, my name is Rosie Cowan and I'm a first year PhD student and I'm looking at jury decision making in rape trials. So to start our episode, uh, we would just like to weigh in with Rosie about um, defining rape myths. Well, rape myths have been around for centuries um, basically, they come from the patriarchal system and there are false assumptions um, about sex and sexuality and rape and rape victims, um, which basically if uh, you deviate from these um, unwritten rules about, about sex, um, then rape myths are around to blame the victim and um, excuse the perpetrator. And they apply uh, not just to women um, victims, uh, but to people of all genders and sexualities and races, but they basically stem from the patriarchal beliefs and values. So most uh, rape cases which actually end up in court uh, hinge on the issue of consent. Um, whether the victim uh, in fact consented to um, sexual intercourse and with the defendant usually claiming that um, she did. So a lot of rape myths are around that, around consent, which of course has different definitions uh, in the law in different parts of the world. So in the Sexual Offences Northern Ireland Order 2008, consent is defined under Section 3 as, for the purposes of this order, a person consents if he agrees by choice and has the freedom and capacity to make that choice. Now, that is the only definition of consent that is listed in this order. Uh, in order to contrast in different jurisdictions, especially where the four of us are from, um, we would just like to contrast from a Canadian perspective on my point, um, 
what the differences are in statutes. So under the Canadian Criminal Code, section 153.1, subsection 22, consent is defined as the voluntary agreement of the complainants to engage in the sexual activity in question. Now, what's interesting to contrast this against the Northern Ireland order of sexual offences is that the Canadian Criminal Code actually goes on to describe when no consent is obtained and what that looks like. This is defined under Section 3A to E. So Section A states, Agreement is expressed by words or conduct of a person other than the complainant. A.1 says the complainant is unconscious. Section B, the complainant is incapable of consenting to the activity for any reason other than one referred to in paragraph A. Section C, the accused counsels or incites the complainant to engage in the activity by abusing a position of trust, power, or authority. Section D, the complainant expresses by words or conduct a lack of agreement to engage in the activity. And section E, the complainant, arguably, I think this is a pretty important one, having consented to engage in sexual activity, expresses by words or conduct a lack of agreement to continue to engage in the act. I think that's a really important one when it comes to consent, the idea, because people often think that if consent is given at the start, that that consent carries throughout. But I think it's really important for people to know that consent needs to be given throughout for each different sexual act, not that, that you want to do because then you know it's it's well within your rights to to not want to do certain things but be okay with the rest so I think that's a really important um section um when it comes to India um section 375 of the Indian Penal Code defines consent as an unequivocal voluntary agreement when the woman by words gestures or any form of verbal or non-verbal communication communicates willingness to participate in the specific sexual act but what's really important is there was actually a case in 2017, um, which was Mahmoud Farooqi versus the state of NCT of Delhi, that actually undermined the purpose of this act that was introduced in 2013 and actually um, garnered a, a lot of public outcry when it came to that. So in contrast, again, to the Northern um, Ireland order, I think there's it's a lot more descriptive and there's a lot more present there um, for interpretation in California, consent is defined to mean positive cooperation in act or attitude pursuant to exercise of free will. The person must act freely and voluntarily and have knowledge of the nature of the act or transaction involved. In California, the consent statute stands out in comparison to the rest of the United States due to this common misconception that consent is purely a verbal exchange between individuals rather than obtaining a visual component referring to the attitude of the individuals involved. Consent in the Republic of Ireland is found under the Criminal Law Sexual Offences Act 2017. It states that a person consents to a sexual act if he or she freely and voluntarily agrees to engage in that act. The act also provides several circumstances under which consent cannot be given. A person does not give consent if he or she is asleep or unconscious, for example. And similarly to Canada, the act also states that consent can be withdrawn at any time before or while the act is taking place. And this is in stark contrast to Northern Ireland's act. 
yeah, I think the main reason why we just kind of talked about consent and kind of um, did that was because I think a lot of rape myths indicate the presence of consent um, when they really don't. So, for example, um, one of the common ones that I've always heard is, oh, she, she, she it was provoked because of the way she dressed. So as if her wearing a skirt or her wearing whatever she's wearing is any in any way saying yes to be raped. Um, and so I think rape myths kind of put forward this idea that if you do this or you do that or you say this, then that's just unequivocal consent given right then and there, which is why I think it was really important for us to talk about that. Um, if I could just... I think it's really interesting to look at the different definitions of, of consent legally around the world, and it is a very uh, disputed issue. There's a big debate in the legal world at the minute about... Um, in the UK about moving towards a more positive affirmation of consent, um, defining it a, a, a bit more. Um, in the law in Northern Ireland and in England and Wales as well, there is also a clause about um, the defendant's reasonable belief in consent, uh, which can cause a lot of problems too when maybe a situation where there's been you know alcohol taken what is um what is belief in consent and what is reasonable belief so that um uh, can leave the door open uh, for a lot of um rape myths as well for sure for sure because i think that that is sort of putting more power into the defendant's hands of being able to say well i thought this or i thought that and then mm -hmm. that sort of leaves the victim, it leaves the defendant's word against the victim, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, in comparison to reflecting on that Canadian, or sorry, the um, Californian statute, where the attitude itself um, is acknowledged in the statute, I think is pretty huge. Just mm -hmm. imagine if if everywhere had a statute like that, what that what repercussions that could be like for victims of, mm -hmm. of sexual offences. Mm -hmm. Well, of course, in, in any criminal trial here, the burden of proof is on the prosecution, but often in a rape case, the um, consequences of that, it, it is it does become a he said, she said contest of credibility between the complainant and the defendant. Um, one of the difficulties, I suppose, with that more trying to flesh out and define consent and um, a positive um definition of consent is it you know is it really realistic how can we be sure by verbal or non-verbal indications that the complainant did consent to this action to that action and you're absolutely right very important thing about consent is it's continuing it's ongoing uh, lady hale um or the re retiring the outgoing um president of the supreme court of the uk said that consent is um, very particular. It's um, to a particular person, to a particular act, at a particular time. Mm -hmm. About um, drinking and how drugs and alcohol can always sort of cast a reasonable doubt on, oh, I thought that consent was there and stuff. But in my head, it's, you know, if if drinking or drugs or dressing a certain way provokes rape, then anybody who's not doing that shouldn't technically be ever raped. Like, if, if, if people put forward this argument that, oh, like drinking leads to rape then no one who's sober should have ever been raped and you know that's where I think these myths start to fall apart and I think the I think it's important that people my age and even younger are are made aware of these because you never really think about them unless you're told about them and once you start to think about them and you start to pick them apart you really see that oh they really are detrimental when it comes to rape victims and there are deep psychological reasons why mm -hmm. people believe rape as well as being in this culture and society which is uh, 
um, patriarchal, um, there's a great comfort in thinking, uh, even though it's not true, that if we keep the rules, if we dress a certain way, if we don't drink too much, if we don't take drugs, that nothing bad will ever happen to us. And that indeed is um, one of the reasons that rape myths run very deep psychologically. Mm-hmm. Do you also think the whole stigma around rape kind of gives power to these rape myths? Yes, and many victims believe rape myths too. It's very important. It's one of the reasons that so few people come forward to report rape to the police is that many victims um, don't define uh, maybe until years later what happened to them as rape or they're ashamed, misplaced, guilt. Um, so sure, they affect they affect everyone, even the victims and, and the perpetrators and everyone within the criminal justice system. Bringing it back here home to Northern Ireland, when you have a high profile case where someone does come forward um, with allegations, uh, specifically referring to the Patty Jackson case, Rosie, as a researcher uh, uh, studying that case, what can you speak to in terms of um, what you saw in the courtroom referring back to rape myths? Well, as you said, uh, Alex, this was a very high-profile case. Um, Two members of the Ulster rugby team charged with rape and two of their friends charged with lesser offences. It garnered a great deal of media coverage and a great deal of controversy. Uh, It's important to say that all four men were acquitted of all charges, but I did attend a great deal of that trial and saw a lot of rape myths brought forward by the defence team in court, which I have to say is, uh, in my previous life, as a journalist covering other cases, this is pretty much standard practice. Um, it was said that the young woman um, was kind of a groupie, a fan, and that she went home um, to Patty Jackson's house because she was starstruck and she complained, um, called rape the next day because she was ashamed of what she'd done, that she didn't call for help when someone else entered the room, one of the other girls at the party and that she didn't fight off. And these were all used in court by the defence team to suggest that she wasn't raped. As I said, all four men were acquitted of all uh, charges. And because we're not privy to jury deliberations, we can't uh, draw a line and say that this was why or how the jury made their decision. That's something that we don't know. Um, But the case uh, did create... um, great controversy uh, with um, people on both sides of the debate. Uh, So as it brought to the the fore, um, one of the points was the kind of use of rape myths and also the production of the um, complainant's underwear in court, uh, which is also quite a common thing in a rape case for the complainant's underwear to be uh, passed around the the jury and um, displayed. There was there was a there was a case down south about that that garnered a massive public outcry. I remember mm-hmm. where the woman I think was wearing a thong and mm-hmm. yeah that was mm-hmm. passed around the court as a way to be like oh look she consented, which kind of again brings us mm-hmm. back to that rape myth of the way you dress you're asking for it almost. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, it's rare that underwear, as I said, most rape trials are about consent. It's rare that underwear has any kind of um, forensic um, evidential value in Mm. a rape case. Um, So often um, the reasons for this, I think, are um, 
um, a tactic by the defence team, really, to humiliate the, the complainant. Yeah, I think it sexualizes something so ordinary as underwear, mm-hmm. you know, something that everyone and anyone mm-hmm. wears, just as a way to sort of, I think, victim shame almost. Yep. yep, and you may remember some of the protests that took place after the Belfast Ulster rugby trial, um, women indeed wearing underwear over their clothes and saying this is not an invitation to to rape me. Mm-hmm. Um, so that point was certainly highlighted during that trial and the one down in Cork as well that you mentioned with the thong. Referring back to what you said earlier, Rosie, that a rape myth is that a complainant should scream out and fight. But of course we know that it's very often that victims or complainants freeze as a response to this act. Yes, definitely. I actually saw this displayed many times while interning at the Illinois State's Attorney's Office watching sexual offense cases that I actually was drawn to look up if there is scientific research behind this freezing sensation. And there has in recent years been um, articles addressing this tonic immobility experience that is similar to an animal's like fight or flight kind of sensation. And a quote from an article addressing tonic immobility says, rape victims who present tonic immobility during the sexual assault are frequently overwhelmed by shame and can receive less empathy as well as less legal protection because successful prosecution of sexual offenders in legal courts is strongly related to the signs of resistance in most countries. While in the statutes in Northern Ireland do not say that you have to fight back, this is commonly an argument brought on by the defense to discredit the survivor. Yeah, um, and I think oftentimes um, the victim or the complainant would often even freeze just as a way to protect themselves out of fear of violence if they did fight back. Um, Like the case I mentioned earlier that kind of undermined um, India's consent, um, in the Indian Penal Code, um, the Mahmoud Faruqi, one of the arguments made against the complainant or the victim was that, um, oh, she didn't fight back, that um, she just like laid there and there was no like physical fighting back. And so in some twisted way, that was her way of saying yes. But I think a lot of the times that can stem from, you know, fear of actually escalating and even fear of death or being killed. Cause I mean, I think a lot of this comes from this, image of real rape as a madman stranger jumping on a woman in a dark alley um, she's never seen this guy before and that she's very seriously physically injured by rape which actually holds true for a very tiny minority and 90% of cases the victim of rape knows the perpetrator maybe a partner an ex-partner a relative someone she's been on a date with Um, But what defence often do in court is try to distance um, the offence on trial from this image of real rape, which is very strong in a lot of people's minds. And the more successfully they can do that and the more successfully they can discredit the complainant by um, drawing attention to her clothing, her drinking habits, her flirting quite often um, it's thought that this has an effect on the jury. Certainly the defence think it has an effect on the jury or they wouldn't do it. Yeah, I think the whole bringing up the victim's sexual past as well is a really big thing in rape cases where, you know, they're almost like shamed for being sexually active, whether it was with the accused or someone else, which I think is 
I don't know if that's particularly a rape myth, but I think it's a def- it's definitely a tactic oh, used. Oh yes, it it certainly is, and I mean, indeed the law was changed here and in England and Wales to try to curtail the use of sexual history. And mm-hmm. It's a big thing about promiscuity, and again back to the. Uh, patriarchal values that you know women are not supposed to be promiscuous and if they are then they're doing something wrong and they deserve to be raped and um, certainly a, a rape myth um, but despite the um, lobbying change to kind of curb the use of sexual history in trial it still gets in there in fact um, surveys in England and Wales have shown uh, that it's been introduced in about two-thirds of rape trials mm-hmm. um, even though um, it, it, there are still ways and means to, to get it in evidentially. Um, so it still gets in there. And we don't know, as I say, we don't know the effect it has on the jury, but certainly it's used. Uh, Maeve, as working in the state attorney's office, did you ever see this brought up in cases? Did you find that it was a common thing or is it more something um, that might be happening elsewhere that it's maybe shown as being better not used over in Chicago? Well, during my experience at the state's attorney's office, I did not actually see this get brought up in court. This doesn't mean that it doesn't happen, but during the trials that we had, this was not brought up. So I do not know. I bet it is a problem and has come up, but it depends on the jurisdiction that you are in. Following the controversies of the Patty Jackson case, Sir John Gillen set out an extensive um, list of recommendations on the report into the law and procedures in serious sexual offences in Northern Ireland. And he also includes um, measures to combat rape myths and stereotypes, such as um, more robust attitudes by judges to prevent improper cross-examination about previous sexual history. Yes, Jade, um, more robust um, judicial rebuttal of some of the defence um, argument using rape myths was one of the recommendations. Um, others were um, stronger judicial directions to the jury, uh, warning them against the dangers of believing rape myths and also jury education, possibly showing the jury a short half hour video before the trial to try to educate them about rape myths. Um, because as I, said, as I said earlier, jury deliberation is really something we know very little about in this country. It's illegal to um observe a jury deliberating or ask them any questions on how they reached their verdict. Uh, There are some very interesting um, studies with mock juries in England and Wales and other jurisdictions that have found that rape myths are influential in jury decision making, that they can prejudice juries against the complainant. Um, So that might be one avenue. Um, I know that in North America, Um, the defence and the prosecution vet jurors for prejudice and that's an interesting it's an interesting idea it's one that uh, Judge Gillen wasn't really in favour of but um, I wonder what you think about that. Yeah I mean the jury vetting in the states is very similar to Canada Um, I can't think of any particular cases um, that come to mind um, regarding jury vetting um, in in Canada anyway, but something that kind of sticks out to me that's been pretty recent in the States was the Harvey Weinstein trial and just how intense that jury vetting process was as it, as everyone probably knows, has been a two year long process of getting him to case, of course. Yeah. So, I mean, they had between 400 to 500 people vetted for the jury and it was just a a long process. It's very interesting to see how... um, 
how jurors are vetted and and what is required of them, what's not required, mm. um, and just you know getting down to those last people, you know who who can sit in on a trial like that and be impartial after being exposed to everything yeah. the past couple of years. That's, that's the problem, and it's very difficult to prove that that. Um, leads to a fairer jury. The vetting system, of course, people are not going to openly declare prejudices. And in the case of rape myths, a lot of these biases are unconscious, so they mm-hmm. may not even be aware that they have them. Do you think a way to combat that would be for the court to just provide the expert witness instead of each side, and then for each side to just have the witness that they do? So the court would provide the medical examiner who would who would well they would be seen then to be on the prosecution mm-hmm. side i think I that might be the, the th- yeah yeah and the yeah. the thing in a criminal trial yeah. is that all the powers seem to be with the state already mm-hmm. which is why um the burden of proof is on the state and why the defense gets the chance to to answer back really mm-hmm. and so it's a, it's a difficult one mm-hmm. um um, social media, obviously, when it comes to high-profile um, cases, plays a huge part. Um, and relating that back to jury vetting, um, like as I said, it was a two-year-long process getting the Harvey Weinstein to court. Um, I'm not sure exactly how long um, the Patty Jackson one took to get to court, but there was no, obviously, jury vetting there. But I'm sure that the jury was seeing the reports, seeing you know, media about it. Um, so social media, I'm sure, plays a huge part in yeah. um, in how juries, you know, perhaps choose their decisions. Well, they're not supposed to, and yeah. the judge warns them every day not to look at any media, yeah. but of course, this, this is the problem. We, we just don't know. And as oh, you were um, saying, um, in a very high-profile case, this is one of the problems now is the media coverage and indeed the social media coverage. It's like everyone's everyone's got an opinion. I know in the Republic of Ireland that the names of the accused are not made public unless they are convicted. And I think this would have made an enormous difference in the way in which the Belfast trial was reported upon as much of the media and public interests related to the men's identities. Um, it's a good point, Jade, and many people would agree with you, but there are difficulties with not naming the defendants. And I think w- uh, one of them in a jurisdiction as small as Northern Ireland is that the names would have got out anyway. And then we could have had the whole debate um, on social media and stripping out that layer of professional journalism. So we could have a lot of misinformation and disinformation coming from members of the public on social media, I think the names would have got out anyway in a a small jurisdiction and in such a high-profile trial. Um, And I think there is a a level of protection in having um, the reports from the professional media who um, are guided by professional codes of reporting. I think it's important um, to contrast that to maybe Canadian and American um, reporting because, of course, there are the the professional um, journalists who report on it, but there's also so, there's an unlimited amount of online platforms um, like BuzzFeed, Vice, all these, you know, um, 
not professional platforms that talk about um, issues and trials and and current cases going on that will be from a, an opinionated perspective. And that's more, I think, what mm-hmm. what people would be reading and have easier access to online. It's more what's going to be coming up. So it's really interesting, I think, to contrast that to here. You don't see that as much over here. You'll get more of, mm-hmm. of a professional um, reporting. It is, it is, but it's part of the... Um, it's the problem of the, the modern world mm-hmm. is that... Um, the internet and social media now is far outstripping the law and it's mm-hmm. causing some real problems to um, criminal trials. Um, there is another side to that in that um, social media and all these platforms allow counter-narratives to emerge as well. In some ways, coming back to the rape myth um, problem, um, sure, social media and the internet can become a bit of an echo chamber and they can magnify some of these rape myths. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, there can be um, a counter-narrative and we saw the um, the protests and um, the controversy over the Belfast Ulster rugby trial, a lot of that emerged on social media as well. So um, it can be a force for for good and bad. Yeah, like I think had we not known about that down south, her underwear being held up in court, I think it, like if there's no public outcry, how are we going to hold the courts mm-hmm. accountable? If if it's if everything's just hush hush and you know no one can be named and no public access, That's then it. you know there's no accountability mm-hmm. when it comes to the courts and the judges and the juries and the defendants well, and, and well this is a this is the principle of open justice justice yeah. has to be not only done but seen to be done mm-hmm. and if you take um something like the the belfast trial um it's possible that the complainant would have um endured a similar cross-examination because the jury would still have been there um she would still have gone through that ordeal of cross-examination and her underwear being produced in court whether the defendant's uh, names were publicised or not Yeah, I think it was in the Gillen report as well, Um, one of the points made was that public access to trials involving serious sexual offences to be confined to close family members of the complainant and the defendant so as someone who did actually sit in the trial how, how would you feel about that if that did come into force? Well, as a former journalist, I have mixed feelings about that. I can see in one way that, um, you know, that could be, of course, the complainants in many of these cases are screened off from the the public gallery. Mm -hmm. But sure, um, they still know that they're there. They still know that there's a public audience. Um, I have mixed feelings about about that. I'm not sure that it's necessarily the public in the court who are the problem. I think many of the people who comment, many of the keyboard warriors who comment on social media um, have never come near the, the courtroom or indeed maybe read a lot of the professional reports on the trial. Uh, so it's a difficult one. Um, but it may it may be something that would make um, the trial more comfortable for the complainant. But another thing that um, was being trialed and was being trialled in England is uh, video cross-examination, mm. um, which would take place away from the courtroom long before the trial and would mean that the complainant, in fact, didn't have to attend court if they didn't want to. Yeah, because that kind of leads us into this idea of judicial rape, um, where a lot of sort of rape victims, you know, suffer from the same trauma that they would have felt when the incident actually happened um, and then they feel it again in court due to the rigorous cross-examination that they face. So I think perhaps, yes, like moving, removing the public aspect of it perhaps might make it more bearable. But mm. then again, this whole idea of open justice, you know. 
Sure. Uh, I mean, yeah, that 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 could be. But as I say, having the the um, cross examination away from the court at an earlier stage, where it's just the the judge and the um, defence barrister, that could be another solution. Another solution that has been suggested by some people, not one that Judge Gillen was in favour of, is removing the jury altogether uh, in rape cases because of this perceived problem of the effect of rape myths. Um, as we said, we don't, we can't question the jury, we can't be privy to their deliberations, we don't know what effect exactly it has on them, but what uh, do you all think about the idea of not having juries in sexual offences trials? This happens in some other parts of the world. Uh, well, I know in Iceland, um, I believe that they do it by a three-judge panel. Um, I, I find that idea very interesting. Um, I'm not sure if I would want to be on um, the complainant side with just three judges. I think that having the power in the jury's hands thus far kind of makes it a little bit more of a, a human issue and, and less of um, just a really intense kind of scary law issue, which I feel like, yes, not having the jury, it would, might take away some, I mean, you could assume it might take away some of the intimidation that um, a, a complainant might feel, but um, again, then you'd be facing three judges who have the fate in their three hands you know, who are just their, their job specifically is to look at the law. Um, I'm not, I'm not six sure. Hands. Say, oh, <laughs> yep. Yep. Six hands. <laughs> six hands. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure how I feel about that. I think it's a very interesting way um, and, and different way of approaching trials, but um, yeah, I especially just, with um, even one judge though. I don't think, uh, I don't think I would be in favor of, of having just one judge. Um, I don't think putting the hands of something, putting in the hands of, um, Putting this issue into the hands of one person, I think, is a lot of responsibility that I just don't think one person could adequately handle, especially with something as serious as... A point to be brought up is that not all judges are saints, too. So you may have judges that have, like, prejudice on this topic and it might not help. And having your peers review it, although there's issues with these rape myths being embedded within society and people being exposed and it being subconsciously there, I feel like it would be a better choice to have a jury as of right now until we can have judges that could be maybe somewhat regulated or educated on the topic beforehand. Of course. Yeah, like is people with, is 10 people with rape myths any worse than three people with like rape myth mm -hmm. or that kind of subconscious like bias mm -hmm. so I think you can't really remove you can't really remove rape myth just by removing certain type of people I think that's going to penetrate into the court no matter what or who mm -hmm. it is like even taking like you said about not all judges being saints um the um the Brock Turner case the judge it was one judge who did give the final de deliberation about um his sentencing and he gave him six months you know, is that any better than what six months on good behavior? On good behavior, which actually so, ended up being three. So you know, I, mm -hmm. yeah, I completely agree. I, I don't think I would be very much in favor mm -hmm. of that. Yeah, well, you know, you have you make a good point, and there are some judges in in England who've made very um, seemingly rape myth sympathetic remarks in in cases. Um, I guess, yes, judges are, are supposed to be trained to be impartial, but a lot of these myths are um, subconscious. 
And then um, if we take away the jury, um, which is thought to be very important in the um, British justice system, um, a, co- a cornerstone of democracy, it um, doesn't solve the problem of the wider society and rape myth belief there. So I guess it's it's a bigger problem than just one for the courts. For example, I actually recall a trial that Gloria Allred worked on where the survivor was a sex worker and the judge actually called her all these degrading and awful names because of her occupation. And I think a good point to be brought up about having like the judge system is in the United States, we actually elect our judges. And even though they are supposed to be impartial, like what if you have somebody who has maybe a conservative mindset and you have a sex worker working in front of you? I don't think he's going to be very understanding or open minding to the circumstances of the assault. I think even just to prevent rape myths seeping into our courtrooms is to tackle it from society's perspective first. Um, rape myths are victim-blaming attitudes. They're interwo- interwoven into our society. And I know that Sir John Gillen has recommended um, campaigns to help tackle um, these unconscious bias that are held in society. Especially bringing it back to just at the education level, starting with schools, um, that not just, we're, you, know, you know, we've been talking so much about judges and juries, but, you know, these these juries and judge judges have were raised in the same society and an education system as all of us were and if they're they weren't given the same um introduction to to the research that we've done ourselves yeah. we can assume that you know not everyone's been educated on rape myths and that's something that does need to be put into the education system from a young age so that these aren't internalized and grown and and just expanded upon as we get older mm-hmm. the more that we are able to reflect on or these even issues. like passed on to generations like if you know from an early age about these and you're able to sort of dismantle them by the time you're old and you have your own kids and you are a judge yourself, you know, you're able to pass that on. And I think that's really important. So I think education at a, at a young age so that men and women can identify this as early as possible so as not to internalize it is something that's really important. I agree. There's a lot of backfire with the education thing by some, like by a certain population saying that teaching like, oh, I don't want to teach my child about like these like violent crimes because of um, them being violent and it being a child. But there's ways that you can easily teach children by like, okay, so you where you wear your bathing suit is your private part. If somebody touches you where your bathing suit covers, you need to let an authority figure know. There's easy ways that you don't have to like make them aware to the violent crime that you can teach the younger population of these like violent situations that do exist. And then obviously adapting that education as you grow older for older young men and women mm-hmm. to understand in a more deeper perspective what is right and what is wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think we're going to end the podcast there with a very fun book recommendation, um, considering we were just talking about um, juries. It's a book called um, A Trial by Jury by um, D. Graham Burnett. Um, it's really good and it gives an insight into sort of jury deliberation and like, is it is it good to have juries or is it bad to have juries? And I think, I think it'll be a really interesting read considering what we've just um, spoken about. 
We'll just like to take this moment to thank Rosie Cowan for coming in and being our guest today. Thank she's, you. She's been very insightful, um, provided us with some really good points mm-hmm. um, and information that we all are feel very fortunate to be able to reflect upon and bring back with us. Um, and just to wrap up the episode, of course, uh, we would just like to point out that we do have an Instagram account. This Instagram account is QUB Law Pod, and we would really encourage anybody listening to get involved, follow like the posts and we will definitely be posting about future episodes um, questions that anyone might have Uh, so please just make sure that you are following that as well as our twitter which is also at qub law pod thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time this is speaking her truth